It's going to be Romans chapter 16. We're going to focus then on one part of it in particular, but we're going to read 25 to 27. For a sermon I've entitled, The Mystery of God, and this is what it says. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. You know, preparing my sermon for today, I did a Google search and put in the words, World's Greatest Mysteries. And the first article to pop up was from Live Science website. It's entitled, The 14th Biggest Historical Mysteries That Will Probably Never Be Solved. You want to hear a few of them? Here's the first one. Was there a real King Arthur? I don't think many historians believe there was a wizard named Merlin or a sword and a stone, but was there an actual king named Arthur that served as a kernel of truth around which the stories were built? Did you know these tales are over a thousand years old? How about this one? Who killed JFK? Now, for those of you old enough, I'll bet you remember where you were when you heard that President Kennedy was shot. I think I had just finished my bottle and my mom had put me down for a nap. I was 10 months old at the time. I remember having a hard time processing the news. The Warren Commission concluded that it was Lee Harvey Oswald who acted alone, and uh, so many people have believed, but... Uh, there's a lot of facts that don't really fit with that. And it's also the case that some suggest that the man who killed uh, Oswald before he ever got to trial, Jack Ruby, who had connections with the mob, may have been hired by the mob to bump off Kennedy because of the fact that an agreement that Joe Kennedy, their dad, had had, had been broken uh, with the mob. Oh, there's others, though, like Roger Stone, a conservative uh, political consultant, who recently wrote a book called uh, The Man Who Killed Kennedy. He makes the case that it was actually Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson who was behind the Kennedy assassinations. Yikes. How about this one? Where is the tomb of Cleopatra? It's believed that she was buried with her Roman lover, Mark Antony, but archaeologists haven't been able to locate a resting place. Another person whose remains have yet to be found are those of Jimmy Hoffa, leader of the Teamsters Union. He disappeared in 1975 and was declared dead in 1982. Some say his body was left in the city dump. Others argue that it's under the end zone in the Giants football stadium. Forty years later, it's still a mystery. What happened to the Ark of the Covenant? The kids who are in vacation Bible school know what the Ark is. They made a model of one for their crafts. Well, the Babylonian army uh, under King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the first temple which housed the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. What happened to the Ark? Some say that uh, it was hidden before they came. Others say that it was destroyed. Others still say that it was taken off to Babylon and never seen again. There's one theory that says that it made its way to Ethiopia, and it's been there since then. Some people believe that it's being hidden by God, and in the end, it'll be revealed again and be used in the temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, sticking with a biblical focus, one of the last ones that was mentioned was this question. What was Jesus really like? Now, that doesn't seem like much of a 
mystery to me. I mean, if you want to know what Jesus was like, read the Gospels, any of them. Better yet, read all of them to learn about Jesus. But the author, who is an unbeliever, is seeking to cast doubts on the historical record concerning Jesus. He stated this. He said, The lack of surviving first century texts about Jesus leaves biblical scholars with a number of questions. When were the Gospels written? How many of the stories actually took place? What was Jesus like in real life? Archaeological uh, uh, investigations of Nazareth's, uh, Jesus' hometown, reveals more about the environment in which he grew up. More recently, scientists have discovered a first century house that's uh, uh, around Jesus' time that's venerated as being the very house that Jesus grew up in. But whether it's actually his or not is unknown. Now, although new research will provide more insights, scholars think it's unlikely that they will ever fully know what Jesus is like. Now, that last statement is just plain stupid. I mean, even for us who accept the Gospels as a faithful and accurate account of the actions and teachings of Jesus, don't believe it tells us everything about him. John, towards the end of his Gospel, said this in John 21, 24. He said, this disciple who testifies to these things uh, wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. He's talking about himself. He said this, And there are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. But you know, there is a sense in which the author of the article is right. Jesus is a mystery in one sense. God's mystery. For Paul praises God for the gospel, and when he does, he speaks of the mystery of the revelation that's been kept secret for years, long ages past, but now is manifest by the scripture of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God and has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. Well, today, I don't want you to be mystified about the plan of God through the ages, but rather to understand what he's been doing so that you can have a part in fulfilling his ultimate goal in that plan. So why don't we join in prayer this morning and get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. This is kind of a wide scope and uh, overview of your plan but it's one that has been revealed through you, through the scriptures. And because of it, we want to understand it and then proclaim it. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we use the word mystery, usually we mean something that's beyond comprehension or or hard to understand. Like, why a beautiful woman like that would marry such an ugly guy like him is a mystery to me. Now, by the way, sometimes the answer to that mystery is found in how much money that guy, ugly guy, is worth. Well, the Greek word mysterion, from which we get the word mystery, has a more nuanced meaning. The word used by Paul here and elsewhere uh, speaks of something that was previously hidden, but finally made known by revelation of God. Nebuchadnezzar, remember he had a dream, and it shook him up. He called on his magicians and his astrologers to uh, explain what the dream meant. Gladly, your highness. Simply tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. (laughs) No, I got a better idea. You tell me what my dream was and then give the interpretation because then I know it's a legit interpretation. Uh, No, check your majesty on the astrologer's rule book. It clearly states the king must first give his dream and then we give the interpretation. Yeah, well, I just changed the rules. Tell me the dream or it's curtain for you guys. You know how it goes. When the order went out to start executing the wise men, Daniel, who was one of them, stepped forward and said, you know what? Tell the king, I'll interpret his dream. All I need is one night to pray with my friends to ask God to reveal it to me. We read this. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in my vision? In its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men nor conjurers nor magicians nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, 
There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. The dream, this was the dream and the vision in your mind while you're on the bed, and then he goes and explains it. Now here in Romans, Paul's speaking of the mystery of God, but it has to do with the plan of salvation focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's three things we want to learn about this mystery. First of all, it was a mystery that was concealed. It was a mystery that was concealed. Then it was a mystery revealed. And now it's a mystery to be proclaimed. A mystery concealed. You know, because of our Second Amendment rights to bear and keep arms, um, states allow for conceal and carry laws for guns. Now, some states require permits, others don't. Uh, this allows a person to have a gun on them without that fact becoming general knowledge. By the way, a couple of weeks ago, you remember, there was that shooting in a mall in Indiana. And a young kid went there, I think he was about 20-some years old, and shot several people. But they were all sitting ducks for him, but what he didn't know was one of the ducks was <laughs> armed himself. And he turned and he shot that kid. There were three that died and two who were injured, but there would have been a whole lot more if that kid wouldn't have been there who shot him. Well, God has kept hidden for centuries, not an instrument of death like a gun, but rather a plan of salvation of, for eternal life. And yet, strangely, this plan did involve an instrument of death because it involved the cross. Now, what God kept hidden for centuries, Paul says in this, it says it was a revelation of mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. Now, if we're going to understand how this works, we have to understand a concept of what the theologians call progressive revelation. It's the idea that, that the sections in the Bible that are early pro provide a certain amount of truth, but as you go farther into the Old Testament and into the New Testament, there's greater light of revelation that comes. So just like watching the sun come up in the, on the dawn, in the light of God's truth in the plan of salvation gets brighter and brighter as each of the authors of the scripture add to it as you go through the centuries. Well, where's, by the way, where's the first prophecy of the coming of the Messiah in the Bible? It's found in Genesis chapter 3. Remember when God put the curse on the serpent, he said this, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The verse tells us that a descendant, the seed of the woman, would someday defeat the serpent. But it doesn't tell us who that descendant would be, when it will occur, or how it will occur. Perhaps when Cain was born, she thought to herself, this is the one that God had promised who would be the deliverer. But no, Cain was not the deliverer. Rather, Cain was of the seed of the serpent. He belonged to the devil. Now, theoretically, any of Eve's servant, our offspring could have served as the deliverer. But then the line for the Messiah was narrowed down because when we come to Abraham, we're told that in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Genesis twenty two eighteen. So now the Messiah has to come from Abraham's line, but not from the son of Hagar, Ishmael, or from any of the sons of Keturah, but from Sarah, his wife. The Messiah has to come through Isaac and then through Jacob. And then we read in Genesis forty nine ten. it says this, the scepter will not depart from Judah. So now it narrows it down to that tribe, nor the ruler from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, meaning until the one to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now in this passage, we find that the Messiah will be a ruler, a king. Later we find this king will come from the line of David. God promised him, he said in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13, he said, when your days are complete, David, he said, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up a descendant 
after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build my house and, uh, for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, in, the initial fulfillment of that was with Solomon, but it looked past him to an ultimate son of David whose was, was, uh, throne was going to be established forever. Now, Christian scholars, not only Christian scholars, but Jewish scholars understand it in that way. For hundreds of years later, Isaiah spoke of this same son of David who would rule on a throne. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 9, 6-7. He says, For a child will be born unto us, a son shall be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government and of his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. Now notice here that Isaiah reveals about this seed of the woman, this descendant of Abraham, this one from Judah from the line of David. He makes stunning claims about the Messiah. He says that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The prophet Zechariah adds to the picture of the Messiah, the king, when he says this in 9, 9 to 10. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim, I will, the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So it's not just that he's going to rule on David's throne. He's going to rule over the entire earth. Now notice how the light of who this Messiah is gets brighter and brighter and the picture becomes clearer and clearer. Uh, any of you familiar with the painter who used to be on, the artist who used to be on PBS quite a few years, Bob Ross? Remember him? How many are familiar with Bob Ross? Okay. You know the way he talks, right? He had this kind of Afro hair, and he'd talk like, well, you know, you can do this. And you can do Did you know that Bob Ross used to be a drill instructor in the Army? Now, you should, you should be disconnecting with that because he's such a calm, quiet, he was such a calm and quiet man. But you know how he would do this? He, he would have a canvas out there, and he'd take maybe just a paint stick, and he'd say, oh, you can put a line here and draw a half circle there, and, and we're going to go and we're going to add some pink up here because your sky can be any color you want in your world because it's your world. And you, I would watch this, and I would think to myself, you know, how does he get this? As he adds this here, that here, and it doesn't make sense to me, but all of a sudden this picture starts to emerge. And I'm thinking, man, this guy's got a lot of talent. Well, that's the way it was with God. He had this image in his mind of who the Messiah would be and what he would do, and with each brushstroke of the prophet's predictions, this person, the image of him, the portrait of him, became more and more clear. In some places, though, the picture is not all that clear. Some prophecies of the Messiah seem to contradict other ones. For instance, it told that he's going to be a conquering king who will rule forever. And yet Daniel 7, 27 tells us that his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions will serve and obey him. But other prophecies speak of him as a suffering servant who will be rejected by his people, Isaiah 53. The despised one, the one abhorred by the nation, Isaiah 49, 7. Unable to reconcile these two portraits of the Messiah, Jewish scholars, concluded there must be two messiahs. And you know, it wasn't just the common people who struggled to understand how this fit together. Even the prophets themselves were told, didn't always understand it. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 
1, 10 to 12. It says this, As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things to which, in which the angels long to look. That brings us to our second point, though. It was concealed, in a sense, in the Old Testament, but then the mystery is revealed. Look at what he says. The revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret from long ages past, but now is manifest, and by the scripture of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God. In the Old Testament, God gave the nation of Israel the Mosaic law with its commandments. He did that to show them that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, the law is to function as a mirror in which when we look at it and compare our lives to it, we see that we're morally dirty and unclean. I mean, when you read and study the commandments and what they actually entail, especially as Jesus expanded on them in the Sermon on the Mount, you realize that we're sinners who desperately need a Savior. Galatians 3, 23 to 24, Paul writes this, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But along with the law, God gave the sacrificial system, which taught the idea of substitutionary atonement. All sin merits the death penalty because the wages of sin are, is death. But God would allow an animal, an ox, a, a goat, a lamb, to die in place of the guilty sinner. But think about it. If you had been a thoughtful, tender-hearted Israelite at the time, wouldn't you have to ask yourself, how can an animal dying fix my problem with God? I mean, David stole the man's wife, got her pregnant, and then set up his death to cover his sin. And when he was confronted by his sin, he acknowledged it, and the prophet told him, your sin's been forgiven. Are you really telling me that a, a lamb dying can undo that? No, of course it can't. And this remained a mystery until the day that John the Baptist saw Jesus coming down the street and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Peter reminds his readers that you were not redeemed by perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited by your forefathers, but with precious blood as, as lamb, uh, of a lamb, unblemished and, and spotless, the blood of Christ. Contrasting Christ's sacrifice with those that were made in the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews writes this, Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time and time again the same sacrifices which could never take away sin. But he having offered one sacrifice, meaning Jesus, for sins, for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he's perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. I was watching just the other day um, William F. Buckley, and it's 1967 or something like that, his program Firing Line, and he has a couple of Catholic priests on there. And they're talking about the, the changes that are being made in the Mass at that time in Vatican II. And the one priest said, well, one of the things that's being lost is the idea that in the Mass, Jesus is being re-sacrificed time and time again. But that passage just told us that he isn't sacrificed time and time again. He's sacrificed once. And by that one sacrifice, he's perfected for all time those who are being saved. 
Speaking of the promised Messiah, Zechariah said this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it's he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of the two will be between, uh, the council of peace will be between the two uh, offices. Now what's interesting here is Jewish apologists always play down or even ignore the idea that the Messiah is also going to be a priest. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. They do this because if you start talking about how the Messiah also has to be a priest, pretty soon it's starting to sound like Jesus. I've listened to a number of Jewish apologists try to refute Christianity, and one of the stories that they often tell goes like this. It says there was two guys walking through the woods one time, and as they did, they kept coming upon trees that had an arrow in it right in the center of a bullseye. And the one guy said to the other, said, man, whoever shot that arrow must be just an expert marksman, an archer. But as they were going on, they saw a man with a bucket of paint. And he was walking up to trees that already had arrows in them, and then he was painting bullseyes around them. He said, that's the way it is with the New Testament writers. They took the prophecies related to the Messiah in the Old Testament, and then they fabricated these stories about Jesus of Nazareth and said, see, Jesus hit the bullseye in this prophecy. Let me give you a different comparison that I think is more accurate, much more accurate. You've seen those pictures where you're supposed to look for the hidden objects, right? It might be a a meadow with trees and grass and a stream. And hidden among them is a a tennis racket, a bicycle, a balloon, or an ice cream cone. Now, when you first look at it, you don't notice the items that you're supposed to be finding. And if you didn't have a list of them, a picture of them, you'd have an even harder time to find them. But once somebody points them out, you're like, oh, yes, there it is, right there. I see it, and it's hidden in plain sight. That's the way it was with the Old Testament prophecies. Once Jesus came and started to fulfill them, you could understand, oh, that's what it meant. It wasn't that they were drawing bullseyes where an arrow was already shot. They were explaining why that arrow hit the bullseye and how it did so in Jesus. I mean, once Jesus came, and especially when he did his miracles, they should have understood this man is something different. Nicodemus understood that. You remember what he said? He said he came to him by night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're from God, a teacher from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God was with him. Okay, then listen to what he says, Nicodemus. Some Jews did accept Jesus as the Messiah. Many did not. Most Many were conflicted about Jesus even in his own day. In John 10, 19 to 20, it says this, a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them are saying, he has a demon, he's insane. Why do you even listen to him? Others are saying, these are not the sayings of a demon-possessed man. A demon can't open the eyes of a blind man, can he? Now, most people are just simply puzzled and confused with Jesus. You know why? Because he wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. He said this, And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was going to die. The crowds then answered and said, We've heard in the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man is going to be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? See, the mystery of who the Messiah was and what he came to do, those were all found in the prophecies in the Old Testament. But they were not always clearly understood, and certainly not by Old Testament saints, and not by Jesus' countrymen, and honestly, not even by his disciples until after the resurrection, when they were finally able to put the pieces of the puzzle together. You remember when Jesus appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus? These two dejected disciples were walking home after the three days they had been there. And as they were, 
It says Jesus came up upon them and they didn't recognize him. Instead, they were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus asked him, so well, what are you talking about? And they stopped and looked at him like he had a hole in his head. By the way, he had holes in his hands, not his head. And he said, what are you talking about? He said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know? Know what? About the things that happened at Jesus of Nazareth. He says this, Jesus the Nazarene, who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. Listen to this. But we were, past tense, hoping that it was he who would redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened, but also some of our women among us amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. They did not find his body. But they talked to, uh, they listened, they heard angels who had a, had a vision of angels who said that he was alive. I mean, talk about having post-traumatic stress syndrome. But you notice what Jesus didn't do. He didn't send him off for a vacation and time at Hazelwood. Instead, he rebuked him. He said, oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the scripture, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. You see, the mystery had been hidden, but now it was being revealed, explained how each brushstroke added to the portrait of the Messiah that they had missed. <laughs> but here's where the Jewish objectors step in. They say, that's the problem. Jesus didn't fulfill the prophecies related to the Messiah. The Bible teaches, and they're right about this, that when the Messiah comes, he will build the temple, rebuild the temple. He'll regather Israel and redeem them. He will bring universal peace to the world, and a reign of righteousness. And Jesus didn't do any of those things. To which, as a Christian, you should answer with one word. Yet, the messianic prophecies about Jesus that he did not fulfill in his first coming will be fulfilled in his second coming, when he returns. But the credentials that he is the Messiah were proved by fulfilling the most important prophecy that was made about him, was that he would be rejected by his people, would be crucified, and raised three days later. The mystery was concealed, but then it was revealed, and now, finally, it's supposed to be proclaimed. Proclaimed. Paul tells us the mystery has been made known to all the nations. You know, Jesus didn't go back to heaven right after he was crucified and raised from the dead. It was 40 days. What did he do for 40 days? Where did he go? The indication is he wasn't in heaven. But he wasn't with them all the time. But he was with them on a number of occasions. We're told in Acts 1-3 that he was speaking to them concerning the kingdom of God. Luke tells us that on the first day of the resurrection, on that Sunday, he appeared to them and he says this. He said to them, These words which I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that all the things that were written about me in the law and the, uh, of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Listen to this then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. But after opening their minds, he told them they needed to open their mouths and proclaim the mystery that they now understood. Luke 24, 46 to 48 says this, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you stay in Jerusalem, or into the city, until you're clothed with power on high. And you remember that happened 50 days later, didn't it? When the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, and Peter preached to his countrymen, explaining the prophecies in the Old Testament, and how Jesus actually fulfilled them. And of course, as a result... 3,000 people were converted on that day. I don't believe there's any, ever been a time in history where 3,000 people have been converted. Probably the closest would be Jonah. Well, 
Peter's message was not only powerful, but it was true, true to the scripture. In Colossians 2, 2, Paul writing to the believers to encourage their hopes of this, their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining in the, to all the wealth that comes, listen to this, from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 24, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews. He's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Of course, that's where we come in. You see, it's not just the apostles who are to preach the gospel. It's not just the pastors today who are to preach the gospel. The strength of the early Christian church was the fact that every Christian, whether they're a pastor or a layman, understood it was their responsibility to proclaim the gospel. I mean, that's why we have Vacation Bible School. That's why we invite kids with the hope of planting seeds that will later sprout. That's why we do the radio ministry. That's why we do the internet ministry. That's why we send out missionaries. That's why we go past our own embarrassment at times and rejection from family members to give them the gospel. Because apart from the gospel, they're going to perish forever. Paul said this earlier in this book, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he asked this, how will they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe on him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Just as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. I only have one application for the sermon. What are you personally doing to get this message out? I don't know, maybe you're like me sometimes. You have relatives who you know are resistant to the gospel, you have a tough time with them. And so you pray something like this, Lord, raise up somebody who could go to them, like who works with them, who could give them the gospel, somebody who knows it, somebody who would care about them. And what would the Lord be thinking? I got somebody in mind. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're, you live in a place where you have a sphere of influence that nobody else has. Nobody. Not your spouse, not your brother or sister. You know people that they don't know, people you interact with that they don't interact with. If you don't tell them, who's going to tell them? Who's going to tell them? You see, this big, great plan of God that was hidden and then revealed still has to be proclaimed for people to be saved. Perhaps you're sitting here and you're like, okay, I've heard this message dozens of times, but I'm still not changed. I'll tell you the same thing I told you last week. Ask people in church to pray for you that God would save you. Ask them yourself. I think I've said this probably 30, 40 times in my Bible study. There is not one place in the New Testament where anyone came to Jesus asking for help or he turned them down. Ask him. Ask him to save you. And find out if he isn't just as good as what he says. Because the Bible promises whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be saved. Will be saved. The message has to go out. The message has to be responded to. You have to trust in Christ. And I guarantee if you do, you'll never, ever, ever regret it. Because he's so, so good.
Let's pray. Our Father in God, you know, we sing one of the hymns that says, tell me the old, old story. And it is an old story. But it's the same one that we need to proclaim because this is the answer to the world's problems. The answer to the world's problems is not a, a climate bill. The answer to the world's problems is not the United Nations. It's not getting a Democrat or a Republican or a Supreme Court in that we like. The answer to the world's problems is the cross of Christ. And apart from that, Lord, it doesn't matter because every person will perish without it. So, Father, that's what we proclaim. And that's what we, the message we get out. And we know that you will open up the hearts of those you've chosen to believe it. And that's what our confidence is. Father, the fact that any of us were saved should be an encouragement to us that you can save any other person. But Father, it never ever has come apart from the preaching of the gospel. So we pray that you'd help us to be bold in witnessing, that you'd make us think even this week about who it is I could actually give the gospel to. And as a result, Lord, we could praise you knowing that you will call in all Christ's sheep. So bless us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.